Wave Troubleshooters John Bowl, Natalia Martinez, and Mark Stevens take you behind the investigation on Wave Now. Hello and welcome to another episode of our Troubleshooters Behind the Investigation podcast. Today I'm joined by special guest, Detective Aaron Tonelli, who worked one of the most um, impactful cases I think that we've had in Louisville in a long time when it comes to homicides. Um, it revolved around a man named Bryce Rhodes, who um, is now convicted of murder and will spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, so you were the lead detective. This began in May of 2016. Um, so walk us through you being uh, on the bubble, as they call it, as a homicide yeah. detective, right? So explain that first, and then tell me about getting that call. Well, at the time of 2016, we had uh, basically three lists. The kind of so went top to bottom, and the list revolved as you got a case. So if you were at the bottom, you were not up. But if you were at the top, you were the next one to get the next case. And we use the terms like fresh and, you know, overdose and suicide. And these are three separate lists. And as you get the case, you move to the bottom of the list. So I was the next one up on the top of the bubble. So when the when I got the phone call from Sergeant Burbrink that, hey, we have a double homicide. It's time to respond. I gathered my things and out the door I went. So when he said we've got a double homicide at that time, you didn't know no. anything, really? Nothing at all. Actually, we didn't know. I, all I knew is the location. You know, it was in the West End. It was on River Park. And I'm just driving because he is busy. Um, Detective Vance was the first one on scene. So he was informing uh, Sergeant Burbrink, and I was, you know, like, okay, handle the business that's there. I'm on my way. Mm -hmm. So when I arrived on scene, you know, that initial um, step into that alley, you start turning on your senses and trying to absorb as much information as you can. You know, you're talking to Sergeant Burbring, I'm talking to Detective Vance, and we're just trying to evaluate. What, what you've got. Yeah, what we're looking at. Um, so describe the scene for me. It's in the West End um, in an area that is not, um, that's plighted you could say, um, and it's in an alley. So des describe what that looked like. Um, well, I can actually visually see it as plain as day. It was actually a, a fairly warm day. Um, sun was out. You walk down the alley. Um, on the right-hand side, there's homes. There's a fenced-in yard. Um, the alley is between the two streets. On the left-hand side, you'll see the uh, backyards of homes along the left side. And literally, I would say not even 75 feet away, is a group of kids playing in the backyard. And as I'm walking up, you know, you're thinking, oh, okay, you know, let's see what we got here. Is this going to be a situation where it's, you know, gunshot wound, knife? What What's the situation? And then you make the approach, and uh, Detective Vance says, is pretty bad. And when he said that, and you walk up and you see those two kids basically laying right next to each other, you, your, your mind, you know, you, that picture will forever be ingrained in your mind, no matter how you do it. I was just thinking, you know, you said I can describe it and see it in my mind uh, even today, and this is seven years ago. Um, so if the scene stays in your mind. I can only imagine what else, what 
horrible images have stuck with you for so long. Um, the victims were two teenage brothers. Um, tell us about them. Um, well, Larry and Maurice were students at um, Olmstead Middle School. Uh, by all pretends and purposes, as far as we know, and the information that we got, they were decent students. You know, they were doing their job. They were going to school. Yeah, they had been in trouble here and there, you know, but that's any middle schooler, you know, especially boys. Um, but as far as them as <clears throat> that day, as we saw them, you know, gruesome is about the only word you could really use to describe the actual physical torture these boys must have gone through um, to end up where they were that day. Their bodies discarded. Just thrown out like trash and tried to burn them. Um, were they out in the open? Like, could you... Well, if you looked at it, and I mean, I don't know if... Um, they were about, I'd say, 10 feet from the actual alley in the backyard. The grass was overgrown, but not like a field. Mm -hmm. Like, you could tell people have passed through there several times. The house was abandoned. Um, it just looked like, you know, they weren't big kids. Mm -hmm. So it didn't look like a, a mound, mm -hmm. you know. It could have been clothing that was burnt or whatever. But you said kids were playing across the street, so a kid could have thrown a, the football, Oh yeah. landed in that yard. Actually, how we were notified was a child found them oh, and no. told his mom. Mom called the police. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's the, you know, as traumatic as it was for all the detectives that were involved to see that kind of just blatant disregard for human life. I couldn't imagine a child walking mm -hmm. up on that and seeing that for the first time. Obviously, you know, you, you would like to think that he was like, oh my gosh, they're asleep or something like that. But, you know, that's just, I, I couldn't imagine as a child how devastational that would be to them, mm -hmm. you know? So. There's just such a juxtaposition, right? Between the kids that are playing across the street and these two kids that are murdered gruesomely left there um, in an alley, it's, um, it's almost like there's so much life with the kids that are playing across the street, and yet the lives of these two kids are gone. Yeah, I think that's a, a, good, a good comparison. I mean, you look, at the, you look at it, and it just shows the, the contrast, you know, mm -hmm. and how fleeting life is if you don't take care of it, if you don't nourish it, nourish it. Um, and yeah. So these kids, um, so you determine, boy, this was a gruesome scene. Um, what, what were the official injuries? Uh, well, um, it's hard to discern how many times the boys were stabbed because some of the stab wounds overlap each other. Mm -hmm. But in relative speaking, one was stabbed somewhere around 20 times. Some, the other one was stabbed around 25 times. Um, brutally stabbed all over their torso, their chest, their stomach, their genitals. I mean, just... Mm. Mutilated. Yeah. I mean, intestines coming out oh. from the, the drag of the knife. Um, and then, obviously, the burning. I mean, I think that's the thing that is kind of like... You can't burn a body that easily. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy thing to do. So the disarray and the just the lack of 
preparation and so forth like that, I mean, the burn, the the majority of the burning was on the hands and on the legs because mm. they were down by their sides and so forth. So, <clears throat> which inherently created a bigger problem of identification. Yeah, so you have no idea who these kids are. No. Where they come from. Um, at this point, you don't know any names. You don't know how old they are. You don't know whether they're related. Nothing. Zero. And you, no, no prints. So no how prints. did you guys, um, so what is the first thing that you guys started doing when you got there? Well, the first thing we started to do was, obviously, detectives started coming in from everywhere. Detective Jody Speaks and uh, Mike McLaren and all these other detectives showed up because, honestly, that's how we work. Mm-hmm. When a homicide comes out, we're team solve it, mm-hmm. you know? So everybody contributes and everybody does the most they possibly can and they're constantly saying, okay, I'm done with this. What do you need me to do next? Mm-hmm. Because, honestly, that speaks to the passion of the, the group, you know? Mm-hmm. It speaks to their dedication. You know, the guys will come in f- if they're off. You know, it's just... Yeah, there is something different, I think, about a homicide detective or someone who steps into that role, uh, whatever other detective job they had prior to that, um, that there's something different, I think, about the way that you guys flip a switch um, and it, you they almost get, like, tunnel vision to focus particularly on the task at hand, whether it's canvassing the area, whether it's interviewing um, suspects, um, whether it's trying to identify these kids, whether it's finding their family or talking to them, it's like, boom. You can almost tell when you speak to a homicide detective and they're on a case, if you didn't know they were on a case, you would know just by the tone of their voice. I think your cadence even changes. Well, I think it's a sense of urgency. Because like um, I've said before, you know, there's a lot of truth to the idea of the first 48 hours, like that television show. There's mm-hmm. a lot of truth to that in the sense that you need to get as much accomplished because everything, especially in an outside scene, this isn't in a, a house. This isn't inside a, a contained building. This is out outside. In the elements. Where everything can disappear. People can disappear. You know, things can just dissipate so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that the um, the actual, like, focus that comes in, like you said, the switch clicks and all of a sudden you're... It's game on, and everybody's in it to win it. And I think that 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 drive, that intensity, just comes out in everybody's uh, work. And once we established that we didn't couldn't identify them, then you know the coroner came. We were able to go through the bodies a little bit to find see if there was any kind of identification. Once we couldn't find it, game on. It's time. You know, we're talking to CSU. We're we're casting tire tracks, we're casting foot uh, prints that were left behind. Now they could be from the suspect, they could not mm-hmm. be, but we're not gonna could leave. Could be from kids playing across the street. Could be anything. Yeah. So our whole purpose is there is to gather as much information as we possibly can and then decipher it as we go through to try and narrow our scope of search. I contacted Ann Hogan, who's another detective in Missing Persons, had her start a list of kids mm-hmm. that were in that age range because Got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And detectives were canvassing the area to try and say, hey, do you know a 14 to 18-year-old kid? Have you seen him around? Blah, 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 blah. Trying not to give out too much information, but trying to establish a little bit of a sense of who, who they, they could are. be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it clicked to me. Once we transported the bodies to um, autopsy, 
and we weren't getting very far with the canvas. Um, I had used a forensic artist before in one of my prior cases, Aaron Wright, who's in our CSU uh, crime scene unit. And I said, you know what? Let's use her. Let's try and get her to come over here. We'll take some pictures and see if she can do a, a artist rendering because, I mean, like I said on the stand, and I know people are going to say, like people have said, you know, why would you even think about doing that? You know, why would you even think about putting the a face of a dead child on the news and so forth like that? And I said, well, we didn't think about that. We knew that wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. What we were trying to find is a way for the community to help us further this case. So the next best thing is, well, how can we do that? Mm-hmm. So the forensic artist came in. She did a wonderful job. And the next day, I mean, this is how fast this case is moving now. Mm-hmm. We talked about that, you know, speed. And how you don't sleep for the first few days. You're not. You're, you're focused, driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, once we got that tip from Oldenstead Middle School assistant principal, I mean... It felt like a time warp, how fast this case in particular moved in comparison to other homicide investigations that I've done and been a part of to where, mm-hmm. you know, you're an investigative reporter, right? Some investigations, there's, it's, it's a, it, it's all like a grind. Yeah, some take a lot longer than others and the pieces are slow to arrive. Right, and you're always looking for that next piece of the mm-hmm. puzzle. This one was not like that. It was boom, bada boom, bada boom, bada boom, and all of a sudden you're like, "Holy cow!" Let's organize this. Let's mm-hmm. get this together because now we've got this tip from Olmstead Middle School, and then all of a sudden, me and Sergeant Burbrink are traveling to the boy's house mm-hmm. and speaking to the mother. And initially, when you, I've done several notifications of you know the passing of a loved one. And it never gets easy. Mm-hmm. It's never, uh, I don't wish it on anyone. Mm-hmm. But when you look into the eyes of a mom or a dad, it just hits different. Because it, you're telling them that your child is no longer with us is probably one, you know, probably one of the most devastating things a parent could hear, no matter who you are. And uh, once we started getting the feel, that this could be the right mom. I mean, sometimes you got to just say it. Got to get out. Got to get past it. Um, and did she know that her kids were missing at that time? <clears throat> well, how, how uh, long had it been? Uh, only been a couple. Of, only been a day, and they weren't really missing in her eyes because, as uh, as we had shown, um, she had talked to the friend on the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, they... She thought they were fine. Thought they were fine. Thought they were out with the, friends. Out with the, at the store. Mm-hmm. He answered the phone. He's like, yeah, they're busy. They went to the store. I'll have them call you when they get back. Little did she know they were already dead. Mm-hmm. So, in her eyes, she knew they were fine. She was actually outside waiting for them to get home to give them a razzing for not answering her phone call. Mm. And then you guys arrived instead. And then we arrived instead. So, um, how did that then develop into a list of suspects? Okay, so here's the crazy part of this whole entire scenario. You have to look at the, the scope 
of the investigation, right? We're going from not knowing anything, just two children brutally murdered in the Infants. back of a house, mm-hmm. in, in, the ba- in the backyard of a house, a banner house. And now all of a sudden we've identified them, we've identified the parent, and, you know, your antennas go up. We need to start piecing the timeline together of where they were. So we started saying stuff like, you know, where were the kids at last time you saw them? Blah, 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 blah. Who were they with? Who were they with? Where did they go? Mm-hmm. What did they tell you they were going? Who are their friends? Exactly. And it snapped. Once we had Bryce Rhodes' name, Anwan Carter, and little Corey, they called Anwan Carter Butta, and little Corey were their two best friends. And all of a sudden, we started thinking, okay, let's try to get this together. And then, boom. Elizabeth Wren's brother, TJ, was also at the home. And Elizabeth's their mother. Yes. TJ was also there. And they had gotten information that the boys left with Bryce and a black charger. And we're like, okay, well, we got to start following these pieces. So we notified the other detectives that were on the case. Detective Vance, <clears throat> with the assistance of other detectives and um, the other, uh, the brother, went to Bryce Rhodes' known how home. But at this point, you didn't think Bryce Rhodes was necessarily a suspect, right? No. Um, you just thought, hey, this is somebody who, along the timeline, we need to establish um, the kids were with, so we need to ask them questions. And that's basically how it broke down, is that we're just trying to set, at this point, we're trying to establish a time frame. We're trying to, a course of action, you know, a path mm-hmm. to follow. And like you said before, you get little pieces, little nuggets, and if you pay attention and you are close enough to them, you start to get a feeling of where the path is leading. So that was our job, right? And then turn around and we got the information that she talked to the best friend on the phone. Mm-hmm. Keynote, that's her kid's phone. So we're doing this and then we're tracking the phone. We start the track on the phone. So at this point, did you know the kids were probably already dead when? Uh, well, we... This was after autopsy and so forth like that. So we get we don't get an exact time. That's impossible. Like a window. We get a, like a window. Okay. So the time frame of the window of the time uh, for like rigor and so forth to set in. And then the time of the phone call that she made and she talked to the... Friend. The friend. Too much time had passed. They had already been uh, killed. So we were so like... So you knew. We knew that that phone was not mm-hmm. anywhere near it. So we started... We, you know, incorporated our federal partners and so forth like that to try to ping this phone to try and find a location. So, once we established where Bryce Rhodes lived, uh, Detective Vance went there, and believe it or not, Bryce is pulling in with a black charger. The same car that the same brother had car said. that mm-hmm. was described to us that said, help, there they are. Now, when we go and talk to people, whether they're a suspect or not a suspect or just, unless they're readily available, we try to find some information. Who are we going to talk to? What is their history? What is the situation? Well, we knew that Bryce Rhodes had warrants unrelated. Mm-hmm. So that might make the dif- the situation more difficult exactly. if he's got warrants. Right. Because then he knows that it's a situation. It, it mm-hmm. elevates it, right? Mm-hmm. He's already on the defense. So we start a loose tail on uh, Mr. Rhodes 
um, to find a location that's going to be safe to take him into custody for the warrants. At this point, we're also uh, tracking the cell phone that was the boys. Mm -hmm. So we were able to apprehend Mr. Rhodes on the warrants and bring him down to the um, headquarters. What was he like? I got to be honest with you. Um, I was not there in the take when we took him into custody, but when he was at the station, he was very respectful to me. He was not disrespectful at all. In fact, at one point, he says, no disrespect, no disrespect. And this just lends to the idea of the stuff we talked about before, about the fact that, you know, there's a reason why a 25-year-old man is hanging out with 14, 15, and 16-year-old boys. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't do that because you're looking for intellectual conversations of the same level. Right. Not for an equal. No. You're looking for that because there are people there that don't have a dad in their life. Mm -hmm. They are possibly, you know, looking for that figure in their life and you're supplying them that figure and then you're turning around and manipulating them to do bad things for you. Mm-hmm. Right, very easily influenced their predisposition for love and attention from a male. It just, it's like the perfect storm. Exactly. And then on top of that, you throw in the fact that Bryce claims to be an up-and-coming rapper, and he's putting these boys right. in his rap videos. Yeah, that was um, that was really surprising. I can tell you from um, covering this from the beginning, I remember those sketches when they first came out, and that's not something that we typically see. Um, you know, sometimes police will put out um, information about a suspect um, and uh, maybe a clip from a surveillance camera, but uh, rarely do we see an actual sketch. And from our perspective, that told us, like, boy, this is this is a case um, because you don't typically see that. Uh, so let's go back to when you guys bright brought. Bryson. Um, so we had him in there, had him in the off, I had him in the uh, uh, interview room. And I walked in, introduced myself to him. And, and I, like all time, you know, at this point, he's not necessarily a suspect. He is being interviewed, but he's being detained on the warrants that were there. So it's kind of a, a situation where you don't want to blow it out of the water and be like, oh, we got you kind of thing, because mm -hmm. you don't. Mm -hmm. In fact, right. He, I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that have warrants that aren't murderers, right? I mean, there's a plenty, and you don't want to put them in a position where this is your. You don't want to get tunnel vision in the investigation, and that's the important part. You know, one of the things that you have to do is there's an old saying: "Forest for the trees," right? So you want to see the whole forest and not just a tree. Mm, okay. Okay. So you want to be able to see the whole scope of the the situation. So when people say like, oh, they got them. No, that's not how it works. We have to build those evidentiary blocks that put us in that perspective to where we can go after the guy. Right, because it's not what you think. It's also what you can prove. 100%. 100%. Right? Oh my God, yes. Uh, and so when he got in there, he has had interactions with the police before. And you know, it wasn't a situation where he felt like he was in a position to be anything other than respectful, I think. He knew he wasn't in control at this point. At this point, I think he felt like he was pretty much 
okay, why am I here? What is going on? But in his head, he knows why he's there. Mm-hmm. You know? So... Uh, do you think that he knew at that time that he was caught? Or do you think that he thought, yeah, I'm smart enough. They were so sloppy, it seems like. Right? With well, all... Gay and nay. Okay? Like, there's different degrees of sloppiness. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, there's different degrees of, like, carelessness within a crime, right? So, was he really careless? They spent all night and all day bleaching a white carpet. Visually, you look at, is saturated, but you can't see the blood. But, I mean, maybe this is part of the CSI effect, right? <laughs> I mean, there's things like luminol, and also, if you walk in, you smell bleach. Hello. That's a, that's a clue. 100% that's a clue, but that's what draws you to the idea that there's more to the eye. You know what I'm saying? Like, And so luminol still comes up even with bleach, right? Yes. Okay, yes. so lumin- explain what luminol is. It's Well, we call it blue star, but luminol is basically a chemical reaction with bodily fluids, primarily blood and other bodily fluids. Um, and what you have to do is you spray it across the whole entire room, and then you turn off the lights, and it glows blue. And that lets you know that there is suspected blood or bodily fluid on that location. Now, in this scenario, with the way these kids were so brutally murdered, you have to know. We're not talking, we're not trying to find uh, a a drop of blood in the corner of a room. We're looking for swatches. Um, So, yeah, that came up. But to go back to what you were saying before, um, once we had them in there, we were kind of sort of easing into the conversation. And at that very moment, Anwan Carter was picked up by Detective Vance and the phone was located. So I made the decision as a lead detective that I'm gonna hold off on Bryce. See what you got. See what we got, we're gonna talk to Anwan. And that's where things started to get interesting. And that's where he turned from a person of interest into a suspect, into the guy that did it. So tell me what Anwan said. Well, I mean, in the beginning, like anybody, uh, I mean, I know that. And he's a kid. Yeah, he's a young kid. How old, like, was he? 14, 15. Okay. Um, anybody, 14 to 80, if they did something wrong, and they know they did something wrong, what's the first thing they try to do? Distance themselves from the situation as much as possible. Putting yourself in another location, trying to change a story. You hit them with a little bit of a truth. You get a little bit out of them. It's the same arduous back and forth that goes through life. The difference is, is that Anwan had a family that really cared about him. And actually came down to the office. He said he wanted to talk to his mom and his sister. Now, normally while we're interrogating and so forth like that or interviewing people, we try to, it's, a, it's, it, it's kind of one way or the other. Like, is it a good idea? Is it not a good idea? Well, Anwan wanted to talk. He was done answering questions. So we made this, I made the decision. I said, let, her, let, his, let his family talk to him. He's mm-hmm. a young kid. Um, so mom and sister went in there and we turned off. This is private time. This is family time. This is not for so us. You're not sitting there listening. And we're not trying to ear hustle. We're not trying to do any of that stuff because we're treating it like he's talking to his lawyer. Mm-hmm. 
we don't need to be privy to that. It's important that they talk to each other in a semi-private scenario. So they were talking to each other, and then they came out, and the sister uh, talked to him for briefly for a little bit, um, and then she came out, and she came to me and said, he wants to talk to you guys again. At this point, I had already talked. We had already talked for a very, very long time, and any good investigator or any good detective will tell you that when you're interviewing somebody, just like when you're interviewing somebody, you get a vibe. Mm-hmm. Are we jiving? Are we connecting? Is it going to be a situation where this is going to be a hostile conversation? And do you want it to go that way? Exactly. So I decided to make sure we crossed all our T's and dotted all our I's. I was going to have my sergeant come in and uh, readdress Anwan, confirm that he wanted to talk to us again, and read him his rights. Once John Lesher went in there and started talking to him and started to read him his rights and explain to him the situation, I could see the connection that was being created between John and Anwan, and I was like, you know what? Continue. Let's see where this goes. Mm-hmm. And John is an uh, amazing uh, interviewer, uh, very competent, and uh, he just... So John uh, Lesher was, uh, full disclosure, a very dear friend of mine. And um, he had a very warm personality, and no one wasn't his friend. Um, So I could kind of see that, especially with a young kid. Um, Yeah, and he related to him. mm -hmm. And that's the key. I mean, as a detective, you run to all walks of life, right? And one of the keynote things about being a detective is being able to relate to people on every level. And John exemplified that. He truly, honestly carried that very, very well. He was able to talk up, talk down, talk with, and Anwan related to him. And I, as a a lead detective, I was like, oh. Mm -hmm. That is pretty amazing that that you guys realized that at the time. Um, I think you guys are... um, apt to realize when you have that relationship with someone or even just the flow of that interview um, to ultimately get what you want, right? And if you're not the right person for that interview, um, then have somebody else come in and you might get a different outcome. Yeah, that's one of the key things, though. I think that a lot of of detectives learn this the hard way. And I think it's it's truly, honestly, one of those things that people in general, they relate on differently. Like some guys relate better to other guys, but some guys relate really good to a mom figure or a sister figure or something like that. And you have to be able to read that or you're going to go nowhere. Mm-hmm. You have to put your egos aside on yeah. this, right? <laughs> Figure out what works best. Ego's not your amigo. Ego is not your amigo. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to be you got to you got to be humble. You got to understand that different different people react to different people. So John did a great job, and Anwan laid it all out for the most part of what occurred. Uh, at this point, we knew. Oh, okay. Let's change gears. Bryce is over here. So I went in, and we started a very casual conversation with Bryce, and that conversation was literally a deflection. 
every time we turned around, we initially talked about, you know, we're looking for these two boys. Now, we knew he had a relationship with the boys, and we knew that through the mom. Mm-hmm. Because they dated. They dated. And he had inter- interactions with them on a, a weekly basis to a certain extent. So we knew. That he knew the boys and knew them well. Yeah. So when he started saying, ah, oh, I knew them from around the area. Yeah, me and their mom dated. Mm-hmm. Real casual, real nonchalant. Mm-hmm. At that point, I knew. Oh, my gosh. But he can't be that dumb, right? Um, I wouldn't call it dumb. I would call it an over, um, like, everybody thinks they're the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. If they've never been told, you're not the smartest person in the room. That's so ironic because um, later on, you know, he it's, it's him not being the smartest person that actually saved him. From the death penalty. Yeah. Um, okay, so but we'll get there. So tell me then, um, at what point did that converse, did it ever change with Bryce? Yeah, it changed right away. Okay, so we use investigative techniques the whole time we're talking to these guys, okay. right? You know, it's not illegal to lie to people in the interrogation or in an interview. You're not, you can lie to them. Uh, to And what you're doing is you're trying to get a reaction, right? You're trying mm-hmm. to get an emotional or a physical reaction that opens a door to lead you in the path to find the truth. So I said to him, I said, I think we got a video of your car going past the kids the day they were went missing. He's like, oh, you might, I mean, you might have. I said, well, were you there or not? He goes, that's when I wanted my lawyer. Ah. So once you in, in, initially make those kinds of statements, mm-hmm. you get that reaction. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. I got the reaction I wanted, but not the outcome I needed. So then you have to go back to the grind. And this is where the investigation is, you know, okay, I've got my primary, I've got my suspects, let's keep rolling on this. Now, granted, while this is all going on, right, what are we doing? We got detectives at Bryce Rhodes' house doing a search warrant. Mm-hmm. They did a one initial search warrant, which we didn't know where the kids were actually murdered at the time. So your initial search warrant, even though you smell bleach, even though the carpet is saturated with water and everything else like that, did they have a pipe burst? Did they clean the house? What do you, but you don't know yet. You don't know. Once well, you can't prove anything. Yeah, that's right. right. You may know. But you may know, but you can't prove anything. But once Anwan gave us the details of the situation, we have to switch gears. We go from doing a physical search of the premises to a forensic search of the premises. And that's where the luminol comes in. So we had to get another search warrant because you once you close that door, it's closed. Oh, okay. So I didn't realize then um, you had to go back with a different search, search warrant yes. because now you're switching, like you just said. You're switching gears. You've already closed the door. They've already talked to the mom and said, hey, we're done. Mm-hmm. So they were on their way gone, and they get the phone call, and we're writing a warrant quick as we possibly can, and we're going back over there. And now it's changed gears. New search warrant, got to be signed by a judge with new information that we received. This new information brings us to a forensic search. Mm-hmm. Now, that forensic search, well, a search is a search, but a forensic search is going to be luminol. It's going to be looking for those little nooks and crannies of evidence that you really, really are focused on. So now at this point, then, it's what um, a, a typical you know, viewer would envision people wearing the white 
Tyvek suits? Yes, right? And with, with tweezers. I'm <laughs> looking for hairs, yeah. right? Um, probably not that, that detailed, but mm -hmm. you're definitely going into a more uh, intrusive type search where before you're looking for the obvious things, a murder weapon. Mm -hmm. We knew the kids were stabbed, so the first search is we're looking for a knife, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay. But you don't have the understanding or the scope of the search until you get information that leads you to the next step, which we got. And while that's going on, uh, we find out that the car that Bryce was driving was actually owned by a neighbor. So Detective Rutherford is talking to the neighbor. The neighbor explains why he lets Bryce Rhodes use his car. And then, now, I want you to envision this, okay? This is a complex, condo complex, okay? On the very, 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 very left side of this complex is Bryce Rhodes' home. Where's this car parked? At the other end? All the way at the other end. Mm. So <clears throat> once we establish that, that black charger is not the vehicle the boys, you know, they were the vehicle they picked him up in, but... How did they get to where they were dumped? Mm -hmm. We realized that he's got a blue Mazda. All of a sudden, Detective Rutherford's like, hmm. Looks around, and he said, as you got closer, you could smell the bleach emanating from the car itself. Wow. From the blue Mazda. From the blue Mazda. He goes up, looks inside, and the back seat's removed. The infamous black seat. <laughs> back oh. seat. <laughs> the infamous back seat. Mm -hmm. oh, so anyways, so considering the information that we had, um, all of a sudden we learned pieces that the kids were killed inside the condo, they were transported in the blue Mazda, and that all of the stuff was burned in a dumpster. Mm -hmm. I remember going to the scene. I remember how that dumpster was. Um, it was up against a fence. I remember the apartment complex. Um, I remember thinking, boy, this was easy to get into <laughs> because I think there might have been a gate that wasn't working or, um, but I remember going there after, you know, trying for us, trying to tell viewers the story. Um, I remember that. Yeah, it was, and, and the crazy thing is, is that when somebody says, yeah, it was thrown in a dumpster that we burned. Okay. Do you know where? Mm-hmm. No. So credit to uh, Detective Brian Peters and Detective Matt Metzler, who went and went through every single call for a burnt dumpster in the city of Louisville, which, believe it or not, there is a few. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and systematically went through all of them and found the dumpster. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get the Tyvek suits and the little tweezers as they dove into the dumpster. And these are the detectives going detectives. to the dumpster? Yes. <laughs> well, if you ask one of them, Brian mm -hmm. Peters will tell you he's the one that was inside the dumpster and Matt was the one directing him outside. Well, that's very surprising because for listeners, Brian Peters is uh, always meticulously dressed, never a hair out of place. Yes. And um, he would consider himself um, 
you know, very... Uh, dapper. Dapper, yes. So <laughs> the fact that he jumped in the dumpster... Well, is... come to find out that's not exactly how... Oh, uh, okay. Matt Metzler was the one inside the... Uh, <laughs> Matt, and Matt, Matt Metzler is his best friend. Yes, yes. Matt Metzler was actually the one inside the dumpster uh, digging through everything, and they called my lieutenant, and this is where the backseat thing comes up. They called my lieutenant uh, at the time and said, hey, we found it. We think we found the backseat. We found it. So, tells the lead detective, this is what we got. Now, granted, there's a ton of information flowing, and this is not the only homicide investigation. If you remember 2016, which I think you remember. It's one of the deadliest years. Well, it spiked, really, in yeah. the city of Louisville. We went from, like, 80 murders a year to, I think, maybe that year might have been 120, 119? I think it was somewhere around 127, 130. Ooh, mm -hmm. So, it basically blew up. So, we were... Running. Super busy. Yeah, super busy. So there's a lot of things going on. So a lieutenant tells me that. I'm like, oh, my gosh. All right. Win-win. So they're going through that dumpster. I just got done with the interview with uh, um, Bryce Rhodes. We've identified little Corey as Ja'Cory Taylor. So now we get another tip. We get more help from the community, which I can't stress enough throughout this scenario throughout this whole entire case, this is why it is so important for the community to be involved in every aspect. Because, you know, these key tips, identifying the kids, mm -hmm. and then this tip that we got right now where a girl calls and tells us she's got some boots that Ja'Cory Taylor says they got a body on them. Mm. This changes the dynamic completely. So we go, we pick up the boots. Um, then we find Ja'Cory Taylor. We bring him in, and I interview Ja'Cory. How old is Ja'Cory? He is 17 at the time. Okay. Yes, yeah, 17 at the time. And we had enough evidence to uh, charge him as well. So now we're, we're, we're going through all this stuff. Now, you got to remember, this happened in three days. Mm-hmm. All this stuff happens in three days. So it's, once again, just high speed, constantly. Go, go, go. Nonstop. So we've got Bryce Rose in custody. We've got Anwan Carter in custody. We've got Ja'Cory Taylor in custody. Through the interview process, we've realized there's two other individuals inside the home during the murders. We have no idea who they are. The two boys that uh, Ja'Cory and Anwan couldn't, didn't know their names, didn't know who they were, and Bryce wasn't talking to us. So, now we start the meticulous aspect of trying to identify them, trying to go forward with the case, making sure we get all of our steps done. Um, and there's a turnaround here. Once you charge people, you have to do a PC hearing mm. within 10 days. So, PC hearing is a probable cause hearing, and that's where you present as much as you can. I'm sure you don't present everything. No. But enough to say there was enough probable cause to hold them until we continue on with the investigation. Exactly. And or charge them, not hold them. Right. And the hard part about a probable cause hearing is that it's like playing poker when you get on the stand. Because every defense attorney... Would love to hear... Everything you have. Everything you have. They'd love to hear the whole entire layout. Tell me from beginning to end, detective. And your job as a detective is to make sure 
that you give the information required to meet that threshold of probable cause. Which is a low, lower it, threshold. A lower threshold. But the reason you don't want to give everything to them is because everything is still in the developmental phases. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't want to say something that only Bryce would know, for example, and then his attorney now knows that information and that piece of evidence is out the window, right? Exactly. Hence, <clears throat> I made a statement, uh, and I'd like to clear this up because I think it's important, uh, about the back seat. And I said in the PC hearing, I said, I believe we have the back seat. We're waiting on the forensics to come back to confirm that. Now, this became a sticking point with the defense during the trial, and that's why I bring it up now, because I want it to be clear. Mm-hmm. That's why we said the infamous backseat. The infamous backseat, because <laughs> when you can't attack mm-hmm. the evidence, you attack the investigator, as a, a wise uh, defense attorney once told me. Um, so fast forward now, right? Now we're at the grand jury, and that's where you present your evidence to the grand jury, and by a group of their peers, of the defendant's peers, decide whether or not you have enough to go forward with the case. Again, uh, this was in July, so now we're talking May, June, first part of July, July 6th or 13th, I can't remember which one. But in there I state, again, about the back seat, because why we don't have the forensics back. Mm-hmm. So you know you have it. Well, you have a back seat, and everything seems to add up. But you don't have, like, hey, here's the results of that. Right. Of that well, we think we have the backseat. Mm-hmm. So we're waiting on the forensics to come back. But you you go off the information that you have at the time to help facilitate the understanding. Now, take the backseat out of this completely. Okay. You would probably have enough. No, there's no probably. More than enough. Mm-hmm. Like, over the top enough. The backseat's like, eh, okay. A bonus. Yeah, it's like, oh, If cherry. you got the forensics back... Great. Mm-hmm. So then we move forward and we get, um, we settle Anwan and Jacory's cases. And what, what I mean by settling it is because they are a juvenile. So, yes, they were tried as an, or they were con- charged as an adult, but they get sentenced as juveniles. So, you as a, an investigator and as a prosecuting attorney have to look at it and work within the parameters of the law. One of those things we desperately wanted was for them to give us the complete story. And I mean, when I mean complete, beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Fill know, in all the gaps. Tell us the whole story so that we can grasp. And we missed something. You know what? Mm-hmm. We did. When John Lesher was interviewing Ann Juan Carter the first time. Mm-hmm. That's when we learned about Christopher Jones. And that's when I made the phone call to Brian Griffin and said, hey, man, remember that murder you had on 41st Street? You need to come in. He came in, and that's how we connected the dots between the Christopher Jones case and why these boys were murdered. Okay, so explain explain who is Chris Jones. Okay, so Christopher Jones, by all pretense and purposes, an innocent person. Wrong place, wrong time. All right. Gosh, I hate the fact that we that I messed that up on that end. Mm. So here's the deal. The boys were with, uh, together, and Bryce Rhodes was there, and he made the statement, I know somebody that's got a money on their head. Basically a bounty. 
If you kill him, you get paid. And he's like, it's like 10 grand. Well, to all of these boys, 10 grand looks like a million dollars. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Uh, so they're like thinking, oh my gosh, okay. So he says, we need a gun. Bryce. Bryce said that. Well, both boys say that he said that. We need a gun. Mm-hmm. So fast forward just a little bit. And Ja'Cory Taylor, who was at the time sleeping in the hallway of his girlfriend's apartment complex, didn't have a place to stay, had stole money from his grandmother, had done some other things to, just to survive, figured that he was he needed to have protection. So he went and bought a gun. Mm-hmm. Well, once he had the gun in his hand, the boys started thinking. They called Bryce. Bryce's like, all right, let's do it. We've got a gun. We got a gun. Bryce takes the gun, and they start the search for this guy with a bounty on his head. Now, the boys all say this consistently, that they have no idea who this man is. They just knew 10 grand. 10 grand. So you've got Bryce, Maurice, Larry, and Ja'Cory in Bryce Rhodes' Mazda, and you've got Anwan Carter in a stolen truck behind them. And they're driving around the whole entire city looking for this guy that Bryce knows that supposedly has a price on his head. Well, then you have Chris Jones. Chris Jones is walking across the street from his house to his car. Going to his job. Bryce sees him. They drive up the road. They pull over. Bryce moves from the driver's seat to the rear seat. Maurice gets in the driver's seat. Anwan's behind him. They take another loop around. Chris Jones is crossing the street. Uh, Bryce, jo- Bryce Rhodes yells out and shoots him. Thinking that's the guy. Do you think that he actually thought that this... No, I don't think so at all. I he think just... He just did it because he's evil. 100%. Made up a story about a bounty for someone. Well, I think that the made up story was more of an impression thing. Like, ooh, I'm a... Big guy, I'm going to tell you, boy, I, I know about this guy that's got a bounty on his head, you know, to impress the kids and make them, you know, like think, oh my gosh, you know, this guy's the real deal. He's legit. He's a rapper. He's in the game. He's tough. You know, oh my gosh, so cool, right? Um, and he shoots him. Now, the officer that was the first responding officer said he heard six shots. And here's why he heard six shots. Because according to... Ja'Cory and Anwan, Bryce drive, they drive, not Bryce, Maurice drives down the street and Bryce just starts lighting up a house, shooting at a house randomly. And that's where you get the six shots. And the officer that heard the shots goes to it. Now, it was stated in court, and I'll, I'll state it again, is that in the mayhem of this whole entire situation, Anwan Carter did run over the top of Christopher Jones. Now, whether that was intentional or unintentional, mm-hmm. I can't imagine it being intentional, but... There's a lot going on. A lot going on there, but who knows? And they take off. Well, this started the catalyst for how the boys ended up in the back of the yard. And I think it's important that we establish that so that we know why and not just how. Mm-hmm. Um, so this murder takes place, I believe, in April. Uh, Brian Griffin is the... Um, and a lead detective on this. And it's truly, honestly, very little evidence in this case. You have a body, 
in the middle of a street. Shots. That's all you know. No video, no nothing. No witnesses of the night. Um, so fast forward. And uh, during that time frame between the Christopher Jones murder and the time frame of the boys being murdered, there's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of conversations going on between the boys. Well, where's the 10 grand? Better question, right? Where is the 10 grand? So they all get back to Maurice and Larry's house, all four boys. And Bryce takes the gun. He's got it on his body. You know, he takes it with him. He says, I'll be back. He never comes back. Day goes by, a couple days go by, depending on, you know, because time frame in this point, after we're getting this information, the boys are a little bit lucid on their time frame, but Bryce never shows up with the 10 grand. And they all know it. They mm-hmm. know it was a bunch of baloney. Mm-hmm. That there's no 10 grand. And Larry and Maurice are freaking out a little bit. It's the first time they've ever, all these four boys, first time they've ever seen anybody murdered. And you know as well as I do, that's scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so a conversation takes place on the phone between Maurice and Jacory. And Bryce is driving, and it's on speakerphone. And Bryce can hear Maurice say, we can't mess with him no more. That's not right. What happened? We're not messing with him no more. We're done. Mm-hmm. You know, we're out. <clears throat> and Bryce doesn't say anything at the time, but once they hang up the phone, Ja'Cory will tell you, and Anwan was there as well, and they'll say that he said, all right, they don't want to mess with me? All right. All right. We'll see where that happens. We'll see what happens. Now, there are some speculation in the thing that he knew that the boys told their mother. About which, the Chris about the, Jones. About mm-hmm. the Christopher Jones. Which changes the dynamics completely. Because Bryce Road finds out. And now he's got a problem. Now he's got a huge problem. In his mind, he's got a problem. Um, so he picks up the boys on the premise that he's going to feed them and buy them some sneakers. I remember. Mm-hmm. Right? And at this time, Ja'Cory and Anwan are not with Bryce. They're with their, their cousin. They're driving around. Doing their thing. Doing their thing. Going to a kickball game. Doing whatever. And uh, once they get back to Larry and Maurice's house and they're not home, they're calling. Wait, man, where you at? Where you at? What are you doing? They're like, oh, we're over at Bryce's. We're hanging out. You know, we're partying. There's some girls over here. Blah, 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 blah. Bryce is like, you guys should come on over. Come on over. Come on over. Well... Here's the crazy part. Anwan and Ja'Cory convince their cousin to drive them over to Bryce Rhodes' house. They're like, you should come, you should come, you should come. He calls his grandmother. His grandmother says, no, you can't go. Mm-hmm. Thank God for Granny. So they go over to Bryce Rhodes' house, and here, here's where we're at. According to the information that we received from both Anwan and Ja'Cory, that's got to be one of the most brutal things I've ever heard come out mm. of people's mouths. Um, so, since we're going down this path, we're going to go down this path first, if okay. that's okay with you. Yeah, that's fine. All right. So is, is it graphic? It's graphic, but it's okay. also, uh, I got a brother, mm-hmm. you know? So you look at it, and you you envision this horrific act, and it can't help but to strum up emotional right feel yeah I mean you gotta understand 
So if you need to take a break for a minute, um, if it's a little too much, but. Nah, it'll be all right. Uh, <clears throat> they're at the house. Now, according to all of them, there's a dark-skinned black male, a light-skinned black male, a female, Ja'Cory, Anwan, Maurice, and Larry, and Bryce. Well, things are going on. People are having a good time and everything else like that. And the girl says, I'm leaving. There's no other girls here. I'm going to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So she leaves. So it's just the fellas hanging out now. And Ja'Cory and Maurice get into a tussle, a little fight. Mm-hmm. Now, you know as well as I do, that really usually means very little. Like but two teenage boys. Fighting. So Maurice grabs a knife. Now, <clears throat> according to Jacory's testimony, he, like, lunged at him, like, get back. Mm-hmm. Now, Jacory will tell you, Maurice had no intention of stabbing him. It's literally just, get back, man. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when things took a really bad turn. Uh, Bryce Rose grabs, his, grabs a knife out of his hand and slaps him right across the face and head and knocks him to the ground. And then he makes a statement. I know you. I know you guys been snitching. You need to be disciplined. You need to be disciplined. You got to get yours. So everything starts to change in this scenario, and the boys start realizing this is not good, probably. And most of the time, as Anwan and Jacory have made explicitly clear, that usually it's just you get beat up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, who would imagine what was about to happen to them? I, I couldn't fathom it. No, I don't think they could either. I don't think they had that thought in their head. I think they're like, oh, I'm about to get my butt whooped. I'll survive. By my mom's boyfriend. Yeah, or ex-boyfriend. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so... According to them, they tie up the boys. And they separate them. They put one boy in the bathroom, tied up, and uh, Maurice in the living room tied up. And <clears throat> Rice Rose calls a vote. What should we do with him? Now, Chikori says, he said no, don't kill him. Chikori says, he says no, I said no, don't kill him. Here's what I think. I think it wouldn't matter what they said. Bryce knew what he was going to do. Bryce knew exactly what he was going to do. Did he, uh, and if memory serves me, he tied the boys, or at least... Yes, behind their back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like right. we when we located the boys, they had a belt around one of the boys' upper arms. Um, <clears throat> now that belt, we went through the gamut of what that belt could be. We went everything from a horse rein to a whatever, because it was partly partially damaged from the fire and so forth. And we're just like, what is this? What is this? Come to find out, it was a belt, and it was restraining their arms behind their back, along with their hands. They were helpless. Not moving. Can't, couldn't fight back if they wanted to. And um, so the vote was taken. And regardless of what we think the vote was or whatever the boys think the vote was, I personally think Bryce knew what the vote was in his mind. Mm-hmm. So he told Ja'Cory, uh to start punching Maurice in the chest, but not to hit his face, just his chest. Because that's normally in, their, in the gang life or the life that Bryce portrays, that's how discipline is administered. So he's hitting him in the chest, hitting him in the chest, hitting him in the chest, and all of a sudden Bryce says, move. 
Shikori moves out of the way. Bryce grabs a knife. Starts stabbing him. Not once, not twice, but multiple times. At this point, these boys are tied up, right? They've got a beanie over their eyes. So they can't see. And a sock in their mouth. And they're separated still. Separated still. So one brother could hear what was going on? I think so. Now, Jacory and Anwan are um, very, 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 very... Um, I think you tell yourself something in hopes that it's not true, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you're like, oh, I don't think you heard him. I don't think you heard him. Or... But... He heard him. He heard him screaming. They're stabbing me. They're stabbing me. Stop, stop. Help me, help me, help me. Through the sock, through everything, I mean, you can hear it. And it's probably pretty loud. And this is the first boy that was in the bathtub? Or is this... No, this is out in the living room. So this is in the living room, and he's stabbing him over and over while his other brother is in the bathroom, tied up, listening. Yes. The fear that yeah. must have gone through him. Can I cannot even imagine. What are they doing to him, you know? Like, he might not have been able to discern what he's saying. But you know it's bad. You know it's bad. And... Um, they pushed, well, after Bryce Rose got done stabbing this boy, he gives the, bite, the knife over to one of the other boys and says, stab him. Now, reluctantly, obviously, he's like, oh, I don't want to be that guy, because that might be me. Mm-hmm. So, they stab him. I mean, you could argue at that point, what choice do you have, right? You know what this guy is capable of. You just saw him stab a boy just like you. Are you going to say no? Well, but that's a hard part because here's the thing. We all, you know, we contemplate that, right? But fear is one of those things. It's the flight or fight kind of thought process, right? So do you think that the, the boy had no choice or did he have a choice? I think everybody has a choice, regardless of what the situation is. You know, unfortunately, you know, the ramifications of that choice. You're, you're dead. There's a possibility. And there's, and also, if you're thinking the motive for killing these kids is because they snitched, and now I'm witnessing their murder, well, he's probably going to come after me, too. I mean, and that's a thought process. And uh, the thing is, DeCorey Taylor said it on the stand. I mean, he said it perfectly. We were just kids. Well, even an adult, though. Yeah, even an adult would have that contemplation. But I think an adult would have been... Because there's, there's two other adults in this house right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, two other males. Yeah. And nobody's trying to stop them. Nobody's mm-hmm. trying to get rid of the situation. And... That's the part that kind of sort of, uh, what is it like to be in that scenario? I will, I hope never, I don't ever want to be in it, but um, it's a very difficult thing. And so Maurice is stabbed. Uh, one of the boys stabs Maurice. And uh, they just push him to the side, just push him to the side by the door. And they bring out his other brother. Now, when you bring out the other brother, at this point, he is not. There's no beanie over his head. 
There's no sock in his mouth, right? I can't help but to think that he saw his brother. Yeah. I would think, but I don't, I don't know. And uh, repeat the scenario. Beanie over the head, sock in the mouth, stabbing starts. At this point, according to one of the boys, everybody had to stab. Um, Was it almost like, all right, now we're all in this together? That's right. It's everybody's in it together. Everybody's touched the knife. Everybody's there. Everybody's done something bad. The thing that I think is clear and without question is who actually murdered these boys is Bryce Rhodes. How many times can you stab somebody before they lose their life? Right. You know? So, and that's why, you know, all the other people that were involved in this case were were charged with complicity instead of murder, and Bryce was charged with murder. You you look for a, a I guess, a focus, right, or a point. That's the point. The manipulation of young children or young boys and creating this dynamic that they don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the fact that there are two other people in there, but there's, I mean, they are kids, and Bryce is a big guy. He, yeah. I mean, he's tall, he's big, um, he's he's thick. Uh, you talked about him being a rapper. Um, I think in the story that I reported on interviewing you last week, I called him a wannabe rapper. I took that liberty on TV. <laughs> That's a good liberty to take. Um, and the boys were in the music video. We played it back then. Um, in the media, and it's what stereotypically I think the public would imagine, right? This guy who um, who talks a big game and talks about violence, and the kids had the guns in the video, and um, it's it's what we've seen before, and this is kind of that persona um, that Bryce kind of wanted the kids to think that he was. I think you're right, I, but I think that that's the that's the key, a persona. Because deep down inside, that's a weak man. Rambo was his... Uh... Handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a weak man. Anybody that would surround themselves with desperate kids is a weak, weak man. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at this and we look at the, the totality of the circumstances, you got two kids dead, two kids scared, and three adults in a room. And one of those adults is a straight murderer. So the two boys laid there, and they put them into laundry totes, laundry baskets, and uh, they wrapped them up and carried them out to Bryce's uh, car and loaded them up in the car. And according to them, one of the backseat, one of them uh, trunk. Mm-hmm. And that's when the adults leave. The location, and they leave Jacory Taylor and Anwan Carter at the location, and Bryce tells them, "Start cleaning." Because mm-hmm. you got to think, getting stabbed close to twenty times, getting stabbed close to twenty-four times, a lot of blood. Yeah, there's going to be some evidence there. So these guys go and they dump the boys on River Park and attempt to burn the bodies, and then uh, we don't see those other two adults again until uh, I got the proffer from 
um, Jacory Taylor, who was able to, once we got pieced together the information that we had gotten from all the pieces, I was able to come up with the idea that one of the other adults was actually in the video as well. In the music video. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing. It makes me think of um, there's a push now for music videos and song lyrics to not be used by police um, in as, as any form of evidence in criminal cases. Uh, there's a lot of discussion back and forth, but you have all the players in this music video. And I think that's, a, it's kind of funny though, um, because it's, it's ironic that they would say, don't use videos, don't use music videos and stuff like that, because who's asking for that? if not for the people in them in them right right so why on earth would we say okay it's okay to talk about it it's okay to do it it's okay to but don't make music about it but they always do yeah so it's the it's uh, there's a big push for a lot of things as far as like control over social media and what we can use on social media and stuff like that and i think you know that mm-hmm. <laughs> but i think that we're looking at it from the standpoint of if you want the police to be able to do their job. Let them. Exactly. Yeah. So these kids, um, so they attempted to burn them. Yes. Um, so anyways, they attempted to burn them, uh, and then they left. And Bryce Rhodes comes back to the, to the condo, supposedly with more cleaning supplies. He gets there, and he's not happy with the cleaning Mm-hmm. job that Jacory and Anwan are doing and he helps them and they start cleaning the heck out of this apartment and then they load up all the sheets the towels all the stuff take it to the dumpster take it to the dumpsters and they set the dumpsters on fire and then they take the vehicle and here we go backseat backseat <laughs> now granted they had the kids in totes and stuff like that there's obviously blood on the backseat and in the trunk where the other boy was so According to both, well, according to both boys, they went and they cleaned the car. That's why it smells like bleach. And then they took it to a house close to where the actual victims lived, somewhere in that area, mm-hmm. to an individual that was uh, bought narcotics from Bryce. And that individual assisted them in removing the back seat and the carpet and all the carpet from the back, the trunk, mm-hmm. and disposing of it. Once I got that information from the boys, you. Better believe I spent a good long while walking the streets of that area trying to find that backseat and that carpet. Um, But yes, once we found that information out, things changed a little bit. Um, And moving forward at that point, Bryce drops the other two boys off. And when he drops off Anwan and Ja'Cory, that's when Anwan gets the phone call from the mom. Mm. Where is Larry and Maurice? Where are my boys? And Anwan says, I I just said, oh, they're at the store. Well, I'm going to call you when they're done. Knowing they're not going to be calling. They were already dead. Exactly. And um, when we asked Anwan, why'd you take the phone? Yeah, well, I'd pick it up. Well, he's 14. I didn't know you could track it. (laughs) So, I mean, ignorance is bliss sometimes, but sometimes it can also get you caught. And uh, it ended up being a situation where those pieces started to fall as soon as 
we were able to narrow in our search on the boys and on the suspects. Do you Did you have a moment throughout all of this, and it's been seven years, um, but did you have a moment to yourself where just take a breath and say, I got, I got, the, I got these SOBs? <laughs> well, I will be honest with you, uh, no. That breath came uh, December 27th at about 7 p.m. Because, you know, after the trial, well, leading up to the trial, that's seven years. That's seven years of, you know, there's always a, f I guess, you know, anytime you do anything, anytime you create something, make, a, make something, investigate something, there's always that chance in the back of your head, did I do everything I could? Mm -hmm. Is there enough? And knowing in your head there is plenty, but you're scared, you know, and you're not like scared, you're nervous. And, you know, going through the trial and going through everything that went through the trial, I mean, I, I think I told you that story about uh, Mr. Chikori. Oh, this is a good story. <laughs> not a good story, but it's it's ironic because it reminds me of the movie, of television. So, Jacory Taylor and Anwan Carter chose to take a plea bargain. And they did so because after advising from their lawyers and so forth like that, that was the best case scenario for them. Mm -hmm. And we knew that the main suspect was Bryce with all the evidence that we had up to this point. So we made the conscious decision, myself and the prosecuting attorney, to, you know, take these um, plea bargains and move forward. Well, uh, prior to the trial, trial's coming up, right? We talk to everybody that needs to testify, and we're like, okay, you guys good? We're good. You know, we're going to do some good work here. We're going to, you know, finally put this away. You did tell me this story. So um, the day before Ja'Cory Taylor was supposed to testify, we couldn't find him. We didn't have a, we had a phone number, but it was disconnected. Could not find him anywhere. And uh, it was, you know, you go into panic mode. Right. This is like your one of your main witnesses. This is a key witness. Like, this is the one that we need to have him here to tell his story, not just for the actual uh, trial. He needs to tell this story. Period. Mm -hmm. You need to tell your story. And so I left that night from trial uh, around uh, six. My whole mission in life was to find Mr. Chikori Taylor. Stopped around midnight, went home, woke up at 5 a.m., went back out looking for him. Finally located him somewhere around, say, 9, 10 o'clock-ish, and then spent the next two hours convincing him that it was the right thing to do. Instead of going to him and saying, hey, you know, you do this or your plea bargain's gone, it was more of a... You've been carrying this for seven years. Get it off your shoulders. You got do the right thing. Do the right thing. This is an an evil man. You are you were in a bad situation. Recognize mm -hmm. that and let's go. So it's amazing that you tell this story because from uh, for the media, our reporters like nobody knew. Right, we're covering this trial and you see it on the news and um, six o'clock comes on and the reporter does their thing. Um, meanwhile, you're out looking for your key witness. 
Yeah. And drag him in the next morning. Oh, drag's the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> drag's the wrong word. I convinced him literally by his own, you know, you, people want to do the right thing. Good people want to do the right thing inherently, right? Mm -hmm. It's our job to remind them. Why? Why? What's the right thing here? And he wasn't, I asked him, I said, are you scared of Bryce Rhodes? Is that why you don't want to do it? Is that why you're having second thoughts? And he said, no. I don't want to hurt the family anymore by telling the story in court. I don't want to look at them and tell this story because I was best friends with Larry and Maurice, and it's just going to hurt them more. If that doesn't break your heart. Yeah, there is, I mean, there it, it makes me feel a little bit better that there was some good left in that situation. Oh, that, it, this young man served his time, not only in juvenile, but also went over to adult and served time as an adult for this case. Since he got out, has had zero interaction with the police in any way, shape, or form. By all pretense of purposes, without going into too much detail about his life, he is doing a very good job of being a good person. Mm -hmm. um, so he gets there. <laughs> He's got to testify at 1.30. I'm getting the phone calls. Do we need to do we need to send out a warrant for his arrest? Blah, 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 to get him in here. And I said, nope, we're on our way. We get there, and it's like those movies where the guy comes rushing into the courtroom and like, he's here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, you know, sweat off my brow. I'm good. We get there, and, uh, you know, initially he didn't want to speak. And I think that was truly honest what it came down to. He was scared of how the family would react to the story that he was about to tell. And the thing that really honestly speaks volumes of this family and speaks volumes of Ja'Cory Taylor in this scenario is the fact that once he was done telling his story and once he was done testifying, you know, you take him out of the, out of the courtroom and he's in the uh, side room there, the family asked to talk to him. And we're all like, woof, hold on. This might not be a good idea, right? Mm -hmm. No, nope, they go in there. Jaquari agrees. They forgave him. Hugged him. Said, we forgive you. Spent time with him. You know, realized that he was a kid in a bad situation. A horrible situation. And, and, and just mm -hmm. to be able to do that and to be able to, to recognize the totality of the circumstances, come to that conclusion, mm -hmm. I drove Jaquari home. And um, the weight that was off that young man's shoulders at this point, you know, nothing will ever, there's no absolution in this world, in my opinion. Something that horrific, something that has committed that much, it, it, it's a hard thing to do, but he's on the right path, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that, just that act, I would imagine, uh, meant so much. Maybe it was the closure that he needed to move on with his life. I think so. I think it was a closure not just for him, but this family knew that they were best friends. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? They have to know why. Right. And also, I think that, you know, at, at a certain point, they recognize the evil inside of Bryce. Oh, yeah. Um, and so throughout the trial, uh, we covered it extensively, all of his antics. Um, it was almost like he was putting on a show and, you know, um, I mean, he threatened a judge. I think he said, I know where you live or I can find out where you live. 
Um, he spit on someone, right? So at, at one point throughout the seven-year saga, he would he had a a mask a, a like mask a, uh, like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, that's what we coined it as the Hannibal Lecter. Yes, I, I mean it was it was just plastic and it covered half his face, just showed his eyes, um, and it's hard to tell whether this was just part more of his um, his persona that Rambo that he wanted to uh, have people think of him as as he would write news reporters letters, love letters, promising them uh, flights to Vegas and shopping sprees. And don't believe all the lies that are being said about me on the news with great penmanship, yes. by the way. By the way, yes. Um, and well-written. I mean, we, we read a lot of letters from people that are caught in the justice system, and they're not, they don't have great grammar most of the time. But Bryce's letters were well-written, which um, leads me to uh, something that we brought up earlier. And I thought, if this isn't a capital case, yeah. I don't know what is. Um, a capital case would be he would be eligible for the death penalty. and But that didn't happen in this case. No, it sure didn't. Now, here's the thing. Uh, you know, the first part of the whole entire scenario is I agree that there's a certain level of antics and stuff like that. But I also think that this is the part that I, 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 you wrap your head around it and you think about it yourself. You're like, okay, is he really doing the persona thing or is this all a ploy? Because he is not dumb. Like, he understands the law. He is advising his lawyers of what motions he wants to write. But how does then... Oh, so tell us how, how why this was not a capital case. Well, and that's where we, we're going to get to that. He... Oof. So there is... Absolute law base for the fact that a law was passed. I think it was, I can't remember if it was last year, or the year before, or whatever, where if a person has a mental deficiency, which is basically on an IQ scale, is somewhere around 75 or below. I think it's 75 to 65. Anything below that is considered mentally deficient. So his lawyers um, decided to have him evaluated and evaluated as far as capable of standing trial first of all mm -hmm. right which he was found competent he can stand trial he understands the proceedings all that good stuff but there's another layer to that there is another layer to that and that is the IQ test now I learned this during the trial he has taken the IQ test multiple times from the year 10 years old until the last one he took right before the trial about a year before the trial the one he took when he was 10, he scored a 90. So the thing about the IQ test is you can never outscore your intellect, but you can always score lower mm -hmm. than your intellect by choice or by situation. So when he took the IQ test, he got, I, I can't remember exactly what he got, but there's a thing in there called the Flint Deviation. And this was explained on the court. So if I'm wrong, please don't hold me to the... <laughs> I'm not a psychologist by any means um, or an evaluator by any means. So once you equate the Flint deficiency into it, he falls into the mentally deficient category. Now, the judge had no choice in this sense. She followed the letter of the law. 
So it's not really on her. It's really on the system that set up the test. The parameters that are set. Right, because if you're scoring 10 when you're 90 when you're 10, mm -hmm. you're going to score less when you're older. 31? Yeah. That's not really how it goes. You'd score the same probably, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't be down 20 points. Uh, but um, so what is the difference between having a lower IQ level and falling into this range, um, making that an excuse for murder? Well, I don't think it was an excuse for murder. I think it's the idea that... Um, you know, I don't have the law in front of me. I don't know how they discern it. Um, but I can honestly tell you this. You've seen the letters he's written. I've been with him and seen the motions that he's presented to his lawyers. I've seen the letters that he's written to other females. At no point would I ever look at this young this man. And say he's mentally deficient. deficient. In any way, shape, or form. But that's, once again... What the law said. It's what the law said. And unfortunately, <clears throat> you know... We just talked about it, right? The manipulation of, of, of law and the manipulation of uh, through the video and the music and stuff like that. That's kind of the whole concept is that, yes, I don't ever want to look at something and be like, okay, whew, you know, this guy doesn't deserve this. He just, you know, he's, he's clearly not mentally capable of understanding what's going on. I don't want to be that guy that says, oh, I don't care. But I want to also be that guy that says, ooh, you're faking it. Mm -hmm. Did you have that feeling? Oh, 100%. Did it uh, eat you up? It ate me up to no end. But at the end of the day, you know, do I think that um, do I think that we got the result, the best result we possibly could, considering? Absolutely. You know, Elizabeth Jones Brown, the prosecuting attorney, did a phenomenal job. Crick Cunningham was, in, uh, was also a prosecuting attorney. They did a phenomenal job of navigating this the best they possibly could and navigating the bumps on the road. Mm -hmm. so, uh, they made me look good, which is impossible usually. <laughs> they did a great job. I don't know. Well, I think you're the kind of detective that will find a missing witness at 5 o'clock in the morning. Well, that's uh, diligence and tenacity. But they did a great job. And uh, I think that it's difficult. We're in a difficult situation, right? Because you don't want to... You don't want to put, just as much as you don't want to put an innocent man behind bars, you also don't want to take advantage of somebody that's not mentally capable. But that wasn't this case. No, I don't. No, not at all. I mean, you could tell from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You could tell from the beginning. He knew in his competency and his capability and his mental thought was all clear, concise, and planned out. Mm -hmm. This case should have never been seven years. You know, maybe there is an argument um, that he he got consecutive life sentences without parole. Um, he was also convicted of Chris Jones's murder, so he's not going anywhere. No, and he's going to sit in prison for the rest of his life. Yes, he is. And there's a part of me that maybe thinks, would he have rather wanted the death penalty? Because honestly, you know, it takes thousands and thousands of dollars, more than $100,000 to actually execute someone. The process is incredibly long. It's not, and I think maybe he could have used that for fodder um, while he spent, you know, the next 20 years in prison while he, the, if he would have gotten the death penalty. Um, 
I, there's a part of me that thinks that maybe he would have enjoyed that. Enjoyed? Being on I'm on death row. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, well, I think that that also goes along with the idea that you had stated before, the persona that he was trying to project. Mm-hmm. I'm a big bad man, and I'm doing all these, you know, evil things, and this is my life, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay. At the end of the day, I think that he probably would have enjoyed it a little bit because I think he enjoyed every last bit of every last bit of attention from turning around and blowing a kiss to the family of the two murdered boys in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. You're telling me you... See, that's the part that, that I guess is the most frustrating as, as a detective. All these little tidbits we're talking about right now are stuff the jury never gets to see. You know, they never get to see the guy that we've seen for the past seven years that has tortured this family, held up the court system, you know, accused people of doing things, you know, accused the judge of having an affair, being the head of the Ku Klux Klan, all these antics and everything else like that. When you look at it and you think to yourself, this is all a ploy so you can delay the inevitable because the evidence is there. It's way too much. Yeah. So, yeah. Is that, um, so when, so the jury came back and it was, it was in the evening, correct? Yes, but I was not there. Oh. I was not there. Um, after I testified, I had uh, learned that my mom had to have um, a heart procedure. Oh, and goodness. I, you know, family's family. Mm-hmm. And my family's not here. They're in New York. So I said my, uh, I said what I needed to say to the family and I had to go take care of mine. Did you feel at that point like? No. No, you were still nervous about it. Absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. Because here's the thing, you can do everything right. You can do the best possible job you can do. You can have every single thing and you can say, I can do no more. I know what the right thing is. But at the end of the day, perception. It is all about perception. Does that jury have any doubt? Because it only takes one. Mm-hmm. It took four hours? Uh, yeah, right, a little bit over four, yeah. I remember um, we were on standby, as we are, and you never know when that verdict is going to come in. And we have to, um, you know, we have to get it on the news as fast as we can. So we were all on standby. And, I mean, I, I know, obviously, I wasn't in your seat, but I remember thinking that there's no way that this guy is going to walk. Um, I was surprised it took four hours. <laughs> yes, me too. Um, I was like... Four hours is a long time, but... Um, they, watched, they actually rewatched um testimony, which, hey, they were thorough. They did their job as jurors. At Christmas time, you know, they, this could have gone either way. They could have been like, well, whatever. It's Christmas time. I got to get home to my family. No. They took the time. They rewatched testimony to confirm their already established thoughts, hopefully. And uh, I applaud them for that because that's how the system's supposed to work, right? So it's been seven years. Um, You know, detectives will often talk about that one case that sticks with them, um, that maybe haunts them. Uh, It might be an unsolved case. Uh, Many times it involves the death of children. Uh, I find that in conversations with detectives, that is the one, uh, the hardest thing for them usually. Um, 
So was this that case for you? <laughs> I have two of those cases, but this is definitely the one that um, I would have to say that the closure that we received, um, man, whew. like I said, I had to process it because I was getting texts and I was watching and getting texts and watching, watching the news, watching all the stuff to try and figure out what's going on. And then once I got the information as it came to me, I mean, it feels like a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So. It, I mean, it was seven years. Yeah. So I just would have to say that I processed it in a little bit of a different way than I have in the past. But yes, I would say that the amount of actual just stress, and not just from the, from the trial, I'm talking about the stress of the case that's been going on for seven years, has it you know it there's not a month that goes by in those seven years where this case has not come up because as a community and also in the police department you know oh my gosh you got you're the lead detective on Bryce Rhodes oh my gosh you're the lead detective on those two boys that got constant numbers. pressure constant pressure and I'm like oh my gosh I'm gonna have to leave if this guy walks, I'm going to have to leave mm-hmm. because there's no way. Do you think that there's certain characteristics about your job um, that are unique to, um, you, well, now you're a robber. You're not in homicide right. anymore. Um, but does it does it age you? <laughs> what are you trying to say? Well, I mean, not, not Come on, you. man. That hurts. <laughs> not uh, age you. But, I mean, that job is not an easy job. Your the the pressure that you must feel and the uh, will to get some sort of justice for these families is not, and also you're dealing with monsters. You know, the, this isn't um, this isn't someone who broke into um, a convenience store. You know, this is someone who murdered two kids, and does it? It's got a affect you? I think this. I think that any time, well, in homicide and, and well, in robbery, because the hard part about a homi- uh, the hard part about ro- homicide is that, you know, your victim is passed, right? And you're dealing with the anguish of the families, which is devastational, right? And that wears on you. But then you look, transfer over to robbery, and those victims are alive, and that travesty of the gun being pointed in their face, and, you know, wears on you but I think that what it really comes down to is it ages your soul more so than you as a person it ages your soul because honestly you feel everything that that family is feeling everything that that victim is feeling and it is constant wearing on they deserve my very best and yet I have another life that also deserves my very best. Mm-hmm. And you find yourself, especially in a case like this, where one's got to take lead. And unfortunately, uh, myself included, there's been plenty of cases where, God bless my family, they have stood by me and uh, said, well, dad's in the zone, or, you know, Aaron's in the zone, so let's. Give him some space because 
He's going to be working some long hours. He's going to be doing some stuff. He's going to have to do this, this, and this. And it's never been a situation where I think that any detective in this department that I've worked with or I had the honor of working with um, has not at some point or another felt the pressure of the evil that we see, the monsters that we deal with, and the victims that are affected by them has not physically wore down your inner soul to the point where you get either depressed or sad or just, you know? But that's the thing, though, right? When you look at cops in general, we all have emotional scars, right? Mm -hmm. The difference is, is that a lot of the people that I work with and a lot of the detectives I've had the pleasure of working with, they don't use those emotional scars as crutches. They don't walk around saying, woe is me. They use it as fuel. That's right. They fuel that passion for this job, for the victims, to get those monsters off the street, to take care of the Bryce Rhodes, the other evil individuals that are out there. I mean, that's... It helps. Yeah, and that's also kind of sort of the difference, right? Or we'd have, we wouldn't have a shortage of cops. Mm-hmm. Right? So these guys, and I, I credit every single one of them, um, you know, they are some of the best people I ever had the pleasure of working with in that homicide office and in the robbery unit now. I look at them every day, and I've been doing this job for 18 years, and I see and I think to myself, holy cow, I got to keep up with them because they're <laughs> killing it. You know, they're doing their job and they're fueling me. And I think that that's the hard part is that you have to realize that it does just mm-hmm. eat you. Um, I can tell you um, we see this this image and this picture of a homicide detective. And this probably goes for homicide detectives across the country. Um, but they seem so hard around the edges. But yet... They feel so much, and they're very sensitive. Except <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yes, um, yes. But you know, they have big hearts. And to your point of using all that, all that anger and all that pain as fuel, um, I think it's a characteristic that you almost have to have to push through the pressures and the demands of working and solving these cases. Um, because if you don't, you will fall apart. Oh, 100%. And I think that that's the one keynote thing that I think that has been just a steadfast rule is that in order to be a good homicide detective, and trust me, I've worked with some great ones, some some that, I mean, Joey Speaks, Chris Rutherford, John Lesher, Donnie Burbrink, some great homicide detectives, uh, Mickey Kahn, um, these guys are just phenomenal, right? But they all had one thing in common. When they're alone or when they're with their friends, that's when you see the true person. You see how it affects them. You see how it affects who they are. And you see why they do the job. Because if you couldn't feel, if you couldn't relate to the feelings that are coming from the victims, families, and so forth like that, you, then you're missing it. You're missing the point. The point is to find and alleviate them from the not knowing. Give them the closure. And by giving them the closure, having them find peace. And maybe you can find a little peace for yourself. That's our point, right? 
Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a long time, seven years. Um, and I hope that um, you know this case serves as a testament um, to other detectives that are maybe starting off on this job and, um, and also to the city to know that there are people like you, there are people, um, some of the names that you just mentioned, that are going to stare evil in the eyes and hunt the killers. Yes, ma'am. So we have a lot of other stories about Bryce Rhodes. If you wanted to see some of that coverage, you can just go to wave3.com, put in Bryce Rhodes' name, um, and you can also put in the name of Aaron Tonelli, and you'll see the on-camera interview that he did uh, just after the uh, sentencing of Bryce Rhodes. So thank you so much oh, for thank joining you very us much. Thank and you for very sharing much. your story. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Troubleshooters Behind the Investigation podcast. Thanks for joining us.